from New York City. A podcast from working actors, directors, and playwrights. This is the Cry Havoc Company. Hello, this is Jennifer Reichert, producer of the Cry Havoc podcast. In this series of episodes, we take you inside one of Cry Havoc's classes for professional actors. In this first class of a recent session of Cry Havoc's scene study course, The Performance Only You Can Give, artistic director Kit Lavoie presents an overview of the philosophy and technique that inform all of Cry Havoc's acting work and our acting classes. This is the second episode in this three-part series. This episode picks up the discussion where the previous episode left off. We now join the class session in progress. Right. Um, so any Sorry, questions about any of this so far? I think a lot of the, the value of, this is a lot of stuff to spit out. But it's like, we're going to throw you in the deep end of the pool. And this lets you know what direction the ladder's in. You know, so some of the stuff that we'll talk about, you know, as we're working and digging in into the scene, that it's not the first time you're hearing some of these thoughts about ways to approach these things. But it's sort of like, oh yeah, we talked about Will Smith. Um, yeah. All right. So, um, expectation in a scene is very important. And this is a similar thing to the idea of circumstances. But that idea of what do you expect in a situation dictates your behavior in that situation in very many ways. That if someone were to come in here to tell me something, thinking I was in here alone and came in and found all of us here, that would impact the way that they would behave after they came in the room. Rather than if they came in here knowing that we were having a class. Their behavior would be different based on what they were expecting. Certainly, if it's something where it's, you know, I know that I need to talk to you about something, and I know that Jenny really does not want that thing to happen, and I come in trying to figure out a way to talk to you about this with the expectation that if I let on what I really want, Jenny's going to get in the way. You know, well, that... I mean, that's a very specific thing that I'm expecting and that's going to, to impact my behavior. I mean, that's, so that's just another way to think about it. It also creates active listening in an important way, which is that there's things that I am anticipating to be true uh, from Kelsey, and I'm testing, I'm finding out when it turns out that she's not, she says something that I did not expect. That actually can be a really great thing, by the way. It's a trick we, I, we stumbled upon, but it totally works when you need to be surprised by something, rather than playing, I don't know what's going on, <laughs> I'm surprised. <laughs> but seriously, that's what it looks like a lot of times when people are playing surprised. But if you play, I know what's going on, but it's something that's wrong, you're all, you always actually get surprised in the scene. So, I mean, if it's supposed to be, I find out that, you know, you've been stealing from me if I come in with the knowledge that you are the only person who's on my side in this situation I'm going to be so surprised even though I know it's coming <laughs> that, that because if you're playing that truth in the scene rather than playing oh I don't know because you can't play oh I don't know but to play that you actively know something that's not true you actually end up being surprised by it in the scene I don't know how you stumbled upon it but it always works little tip <laughs> um, yeah, that, that, actually, I wrote that down. The best way to make things unexpected for your character in a scene, because that's actually one of the most exciting things to see on stage, to see someone surprised. To see someone surprised either by their own behavior or by someone else. Really? 
But the best way to let something be unexpected to your character is to make them expect something else. To actively expect something else to happen, the thing that actually happens, and then it will be unexpected to you. Again, the moment before, I mean, I'm sure that's something you've talked about, but that's certainly going to be one of the sorts of things that, you know, we will work on and explore as something that will be helpful to clicking into a scene, which is, where are you coming from? Because it's a very different thing, for instance, if somebody is coming to talk to me and knows I have this class, if they just run down the street and come on up and come in to tell me, or if they've been pacing around outside the door for five minutes trying to figure out how they're going to tell me. It's a different scene. It's a different scene. It's a different moment. And one of them might be a lot more effective for you, you know, if you decide what that moment before is. But also, again, it's that idea of that there's so much about that I think happens a lot with the idea of being in the moment that excludes all other moments. That's just not truthful, the way that people behave. How many of you guys know Glengarry Glen Ross? All right. If you don't, you should read it and, it's, uh, and, and see the movie. I'm also going to spoil the end of it for you right now. Um, but <laughs> it's a 25-year-old it's, it's a, it's a Pulitzer Prize-winning play. If you don't know the end of it, I don't know what to tell you. Um, <laughs> That's right. Not to be surprised. Um, but the, um, but the, yeah, the, 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 the first act of the play is all about um, that it's about a group of salesmen who are selling real estate kind of bogus real estate, it's implied. Um, and uh, that basically they've been set up with a, with a, that there's four salesmen in the office and they've been set up with a sales contest. The person who sells the most real estate this month is going to get a car. The person who gets the least real estate is going to get fired. And that's... Second prize, set of steak knives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so the whole first act of the play is sort of you're seeing these people dealing with this thing, and there's this one character who's talking to another character. Moss is talking to Arundel, and he's saying, you know, I got this idea. Because they keep talking about the leads, and it's like the, they bought the, this stuff that's like information on people that would be interested in buying um, real estate. So it's, you know, you give it to a salesman, they go out and try to sell to that person. And the company has bought these premium leads, people they really think they can sell to, but the trick is you're not going to get the leads until the end of this thing. And so they've got them in the office that they're holding over everyone's head. So this one character goes to the other and is like, look, I know this guy from another company who if we stole the leads, he'd give us jobs and buy them from us. And so that's the setup is, you know, there's this whole thing going on as what's going to happen. Act two is the next morning they come into work in the office of and it's all about who robbed the office. What happened? And of course, we know what we know in Act One. Of course, part of the trick is, is it turns out that the guy who we thought was going to be, you know, who we thought was going to rob the office was not actually the one who robbed the office. But out of loyalty to his friend, he's trying not to give up his friend. So it's, he's being questioned by the police and things like that. And he's saying, you know, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't rob the office. I didn't rob the office. I didn't rob the office. And I think the trap that can get very easy to fall into is to be playing, I wasn't here robbing the office last night. Whereas in truth, what you would be thinking about is what? Not where you weren't, but where you were. And it's just a totally different moment and a much more truthful moment rather than my saying, I wasn't here last night and thinking about the act of not robbing the office, but to say, I wasn't here last night and being picturing the TV show I was watching at home. You know, it's what happened before that makes this thing important to me. And again, that idea about you can choose, because it's never explained in the play, what he was doing last night. 
You can choose absolutely anything you want. I was volunteering to help orphans, and you are accusing me of robbing the office instead of doing this good thing. I mean, if that's something that gets you worked up, then you were helping orphans last night. But is that idea, again, of filling in the information we don't have with information that makes the role deeply accessible to you, immediate to you, and the word I like is unavoidable to you, that makes the, real, the reality of the situation unavoidable to you because when you consider that this is the situation surrounding my character, I can't not fight for them because they are so right, because they are so right to want these things that they do. Um, it's also useful to think about always going through, where does your character learn? Where did your character learn the things that they learned? You know, it's, it's a useful thing to think about. Everyone starts out tabula rasa. Everybody doesn't know things when they start out. So if your character is talking about anything, absolutely anything, they learned it from someplace. And that can be a useful thing to explore sometimes. You know, where did they learn this thing? Where do they learn this thing? Maybe, maybe not, but sometimes it can be something that you can find this thing that you know needs to be important in the scene, but you're just not finding it. You can make it important by deciding that their favorite teacher in college was the one who first told them this argument that they're using. So that the moment isn't just about making my argument, but it's about standing by this person who changed my life. You can make that moment about that if you need to. Um, also, uh, things to think about, again, things you've talked about before and in life, I'm sure, but um, is the idea of stakes, you know, the idea that you want your stakes to be as high as possible, always. You know, you want to find the facts that surround the existence of your character in the play that makes what they do into something you can't not do. You want to believe in what's happening in your character in such a way that you cannot imagine that they would do anything other than exactly the thing that they do because you found a reason that it is so important that they do that. And something that can be, it's a very easy trap to fall into as an actor and it's something when I'm directing I actually don't, don't allow in my rehearsals. I'm a pretty easygoing guy in rehearsal. This is one thing I'm like, I, you cannot use the word just to describe your character unless you're talking about justice. But it's one of those things that if you're talking about, what are you doing? Well, I'm just trying to, if you can describe it as just anything, keep looking. Because there's something stronger. You always want to find something where it's, it's not they're just doing anything. They have to. They have to do this thing. Because their lives will be forever changed if they don't get this thing that they're trying to do. Or it won't be changed in a way that they need it forever changed. And the stakes almost always come from those created circumstances that we were talking about. In terms of the stuff that you invent that is happening outside what we learn about your character. But if those things were true for you, you could not do anything except for the thing that your character does in this scene. We'll work on how to do that. Something else that I think is also a really useful thing is, for that exact same reason, is extremes are interesting. Extremes are always interesting, and it's almost always interesting to explore both extremes of the scene. We're going to do this scene, and I am trying to get you to spend the rest of your life with me every single moment. I don't want to be apart from you. I'm going to run it next time, and I'm trying to get you to leave and never see you again. You will learn a ton by exploring either of those extremes. If your take on something is, 
what's your relationship with Jenny? Like, well, she's nice. Yeah, I like her. I don't mind her. That will never, there is no way for that to be useful for you in a scene. Jenny is someone I admire tremendously and want at every moment to impress. That will be useful to you in a scene. I don't want to hear a goddamn word out of her mouth. That will be useful to you in a scene. But don't be afraid of extremes. And the irony is, both extremes very often work equally well for a scene. That you can do a scene that's entirely about how much I admire you and how much, and one that's entirely about how much I loathe you, and you will be amazed at how well the scene works both ways. And how much the essential elements of the scene remain in place. And we'll try that well, well before, while we're together in terms of actually doing stuff like that with the scene. And the trick of all of this is to find in your character, in your character's circumstances, in the things that your character is trying to achieve, the thing that moves you. That is always the right choice, the thing that moves you. And it's also important to realize that by moves, it is one, moves you emotionally. I mean, that is a thing. You know, because there are things in your life you think about that just gets you here, and it's not because the point is to be crying or to whatever. But I mean, something that grabs you here, either in any direction, rage and joy and sadness and whatever, that's going to be useful to you. But more important than that is moves you in terms of makes you need to do something about that feeling. What is that thing that I'm feeling? How can I make it stay around forever? What's this thing I'm feeling? How can I make it stop? That's what you want to find. I actually remember one of my, uh, actually the same teacher I was talking about before is James Gandolfini's acting coach, who was, uh, um, that when we were first doing sense memory work with her, you know, somebody said, well, you know, it makes me feel like this. She said, I don't give a shit what it makes you feel. I want to know what it makes you want to do. Because that's what acting is. This is getting up on stage with other people and doing things to them. Action, acting, you know, but that idea of finding a thing that, that moves you. And have you guys seen the movie uh, Wordplay? It's a documentary. It's fantastic. It's a documentary about crossword puzzles, and you'll be like, uh, why would I want to watch that? That's it's good. awesome. But one of the things that they do in this documentary is they talk to all sorts of different people who do crossword puzzles. They interview them, and it's like John Stewart is one of the people, a bunch of other people. But one of the people they interview is um, Bill Clinton. And um, he, uh, that, that he said that when he was in the White House, the one thing he did for himself every day was the New York Times crossword puzzle. He said it was the thing that just kept him focused, was every day he was going to sit down and do the Times crossword puzzle. It was something that was his thing to do that wasn't about running the world, and so it kept him sane. But he said, with the Times crossword puzzle on Monday, he could sit down and basically like just do it. Just sit down, want, Question one, two, three, four, he knew the answer, he could just fill it out. He said, but by the time he got to Saturday, because it gets harder as the week goes on, he says, I could read 30, 40, 50 clues before I would have any idea what the answer to anything was. But then I'd find one I knew the answer to. And once I knew that, I could use that to figure out this one. And once I knew that one, I could use that to figure out this one. And once I had that, I could use that to figure out this one. He said, and before long, I had the whole thing done. But first, I had to find that one thing I knew. And I think that is the key to a really engaged performance, is find that thing you identify with, you believe in about your character, and build from there. 
build from there. Find that thing that right away makes you say, that thing about the character I totally get. It's not going to be everything. It's going to be something. It might be one line. It might be an inferred relationship they have. It could be anything. It could be something that happens to them. It could be something they do to somebody else. It could be something in their history. It could be anything. But find that one thing that you go, yeah, I get that. And then find the ways to build from it. And for example, it's something it's, I talk about more when I'm teaching directing, but it's a useful thing for actors to know how to do for themselves too because something I say to directors is if you're working with an actor and they're like, you know, this scene is all about, it's, it's just, just my mother, my mother, my relationship with my mother is just such a big thing for me and it totally moves me, it just gets me. And, it, you know, and for you to go, like, all right, but it's not a scene about your mother, it's a scene about you getting fired. That... It does exactly no good for a director to say to an actor, look, I know your character loves their mother, but this isn't about their mother, it's about getting fired. Stop loving your mother and get fired. Okay, that's not going to help. You know, but what I would say to a director is, if that's what you're finding, maybe you try this. You say, all right, well, let's add into this. You love your mother. But something that your mother says to you almost every time that you see her is how proud she is of you that you went to college and that you work here. That's something that she's very proud of, that she can tell her friends that you work at this company. Tonight is her birthday, and you're having dinner with her tonight. Don't tell her you got fired from this job. Don't have to go to her birthday knowing you got fired from this job. And all of a sudden, you've got that actor fighting like hell for his job, but for the reasons that they can identify with. For the reason that drives them, instead of saying, ignore the thing that makes this important to you and do the thing I think is important to you. But you can do that for yourself, too. You can do that for yourself in the moment where a director says to you, no, 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 it's not about your mother, it's about the job. Okay, how can I convert the thing that moves me and makes this important into the thing that this production needs it to be? But that idea, again, of start with the stuff you understand and build from there. And this is going to mean something or it's not, but again, speaking as a playwright, it is not your job to do the play that's on the page, that you think the play that's on the page demands of you. You've got to say the words. You've got to say the words. But the play you need to do is not the one that's on the page. You need to do the play that makes the play on the page necessary. You need to come up with the story of your character, part of which is expressed in the words of this play that makes the words of this play absolutely essential to your understanding of the world of what needs to happen. And that can be kind of a tall order and it's something that it's never going to be the thing you think it is. And a lot of the ways that we're going to look to approach exploring scenes, which is what we're going to be looking at, is about the ways to figure out what, are, what is that way of understanding what the world around this character is that makes the play essential to me. But once you figure that out, if that's what you use your rehearsal time to do, if you use your rehearsal time not to figure out how to pretend to be this character, but use your rehearsal time to figure out how do I need to understand this character's world in such a way that this whole thing just makes total sense to me, not intellectually, but here, you're going to be coasting once you get into running the show because you're not going to have to get up and pretend. 
to be someone else. You're going to have to get up and fight for those things you've realized that you need to believe in. And an example from something that I, uh, that a role that I played once, um, was a character in a uh, comedy that sort of gets it gets dramatic after a while. It was a one act play that I did. I was having a really hard time getting inside the character's head, um, and it's a story about. Um, a young lawyer who shows up to his cousin's bachelor party um, and finds his girlfriend, who's a PhD student, is a stripper at the party. And the whole scene takes place between him and the girlfriend and the other stripper in the, this bedroom having it out with each other. And it starts out as a comedy and then gets less funny as it goes on. But something that I think was the point of the play was about the fact that this guy was an asshole. He was, he, you know, that, that, I think what the play had to say was that he thought he had the right to control his girlfriend's body just because it was his girlfriend. And the end of the play actually ends up with that he tries to pay her to not go back to work. And, you know, and she rejects it. Um, you know, and you're supposed to think he's an asshole for trying to do that, I think. But I couldn't play being an asshole. You know, I, and, and, and the end of it is... Cause, I could tell a little bit more so it makes sense. But I mean, part of, part of what happens is at the beginning he's so upset because he assumes that she sleeps with people as part of the job. He assumes that, you know, that, that that's what's going on. And her, what she says is some people work for tips. I don't. You know, that's for extras. Um, and so at the end, she's going back out to the party, which again is his cousin's bachelor party, uh, where his family is. And... Uh, and he says, look, and reaches into his pocket and pulls out what's described as a wad of bills and says, take this and go home. I need to figure out what I, need, what I want to do. And she says, I told you I don't work for tips. And she goes back out to the, to the party. But the thing is, is like I couldn't get behind this guy is an asshole who thinks he has control over his girlfriend's body. I don't know how to play that. I didn't know how to play that, not truthfully. And so I ended up really exploring and I'll talk a little bit more about this later before we're finished. But, you know, what, why do I have that money in my pocket? Like, what is, why do I have a wad of bills? I mean, clearly it's because I came to pay the strippers. That, that's part of me being an asshole, is I came, scolded her for being a stripper, but I clearly came here prepared to, you know, be there with the strippers. But what I ended up deciding about that after trying several different things was the reason that I had that wad of bills in my pocket was because I wasn't coming here to this party. I was just stopping by. Because I didn't want to come to see the strippers at my cousin's bachelor party, but I was coming to see my other cousin who's got, a, who's got a, a connection with a jeweler. And I was bringing him a down payment so that I could propose to my girlfriend and introduce her at this wedding that's coming up this weekend as my fiance. That's why I was there. And instead I came and I found her dancing topless in front of my dad. And that there was something about that, that all of a sudden, the betrayal that it felt, knowing why I was there, that she had lied to me about where she was going, the cruel things that I said to her in, in the thing, all of a sudden became about, I want to spend my life with you, and I cannot spend my life with you if this is how you think about yourself. I, you know, that all of these things became things that I could really understand why he was doing these things. Now, part of the trick is that people saw the show and afterwards they were like, you were such an asshole in that play. 
But I think the reason was, I was not playing an asshole. I was trying desperately to save this relationship. And what ended up coming out of that was even paying the other girl to blow me at the end of the play wasn't about getting back at her, was a, but was about she went out and started dancing again in front of my family, which was such an unforgivable thing that in that moment, I needed to do something equally unforgivable if we were to ever fix things. But it didn't break the play because what the audience understood, all they saw was these terrible things that my character said to her, except instead of, which frankly I was feeling for the first half of the rehearsal process, me being dickish to her. It was really taking all of the words and twisting them in her gut as hard as I could because I was trying to save our relationship. Because that was something that I, that I, I, I could get behind. And part of the additional trick of that is that was a play that I wrote. I wrote that play. And when I could tell you for sure, which is part of why I don't trust the traditional approach to, to drama, to, uh, uh, to um, uh, script analysis, which is figure out what the playwright's intention is. I knew what the playwright's intention was. I still couldn't play it truthfully. Because I don't know how to be that guy. I know what the, audience, what the playwright wanted the audience to think. But then, actually, I thought, you know what, well, I actually like that choice. Maybe I'll go and I'll write it into the play for the future. Then I sat down, I was like, but that's not the play that I want. That's not what I want the play to be about as a writer but I'm really glad the actor made that choice because talking to people after the show, they totally got what the writer wanted, even though the actor was playing something totally different. And it's that idea about you've got to find the way to play the thing that makes the thing that you have to do on stage something unavoidably, absolutely essential for you to do for reasons <laughs> that you understand. So, character history. Let's talk a little bit about character history. And I think a critical thing, and it has to do with that diagram we were talking about before, but that idea of your character does not exist for the sole purpose of being in their scene. Not if you're going to make them human. They've got all sorts of other things in their life. And that idea of the, every moment you're in is the culmination of every other moment that you've had in your life. This is a fairly low-stakes situation, a bunch of us sitting around talking about theater. But still... I can guarantee you guys have had this whole dialogue with yourselves about classes you've taken before, shows you've been in before, things you've read in books, TV shows you saw last night. All of that stuff has been feeding into the way that you've been experiencing this moment. And it's that idea of you cannot ever know too much about your character. You cannot ever know too much about your character. You might not use it all. You're not going to use it all. But it's something, and again, a friend of mine, Tim Davis, uh, who's a great actor and a member of the company here, is, is um, what he always talks about is building a lake of information about your character, where it's just about that idea of knowing as much as you possibly can about where they've been. Again, facts. Not what kind of person were they when they were growing up, but what things happen, because you never know when they're going to show up. So... Things that you might ask, and I actually have, and I'll give it out to you guys before we finish today, but a um, questionnaire of questions that you can ask about any character in the world that will help you get a, you know, a head start on kind of figuring out where they've been. 
And again, the idea is not to come up with questions that solve the problems of the play. Frankly, you want to cause problems for yourself. You know, so you've got something to solve on stage. You know, but to find things that if you find these answers about your character, things that, that make your character feel important to you. And then you'll find out how that's going to find its way into the scene. But things like, which I think a lot of people ask, does your character have any siblings? Yeah. If so, where do they live? How old are they? All right, probably a lot of people would ask themselves that about their character. But then what do the siblings do? How often do you speak to them? And again, notice, that's a different question than how close are you to them. It's a fact. How often do you speak to them? Because what will happen is a fact. If you like, I only speak to them once every six months, you will have a reaction to that that you can use. Or I speak with them every day. You will have a reaction to that that you can use that you don't have to act like. And part of it is you can cycle through as many answers to that question as you want until you find one that goes like, oh, that does something for me. That's useful. Great. So I see my siblings once every four years. But we email each other every day. All right. Useful. Good to know. What was the last occasion on which you saw them? Again, facts. Facts, facts, facts. Have you ever been married? Engaged? If so, what are the circumstances under which that happened? What are the circumstances under which it ended, if it ended? Do you have letters from old relationships? Pictures from old relationships? Where do you keep them? How often do you look at them? Again, that's something a lot of people will be like, has my, has my character ever had a girlfriend before? But those sorts of details are ones. Think about, the one, about what's true for you. Think about the answers to those questions and what they have to say about you. And again, it's not something that you're pretending to be. It's something you're pretending to be true. And then you can have a truthful reaction to that thing that you're pretending to be true, a real reaction to that thing you're pretending to be true. What family member are you most proud of? What family member are you most embarrassed by? What person do you know is most proud of you? What person that you know is most embarrassed by you? All of those things are true. There's an answer to that for everybody here. And there's an answer to that for every character. What would you identify as being the best reason you ever ended a friendship? The worst reason you ever ended a friendship? What was a time that you hurt someone that you'd like to take back? Again, all of these are things that are true for every single character. And again, the goal is to get as much information as you possibly can. Um, so that you have it at the ready to use when you need it. And more often, that will be able to show up when you need it. The goal is not to try to think up, and I know a lot of script analysis character history is trying to think up, all right, what could I have done that makes what I do make sense? That actually is, I think, something people do all the time. What makes it make sense? That is the worst thing you can do for yourself as an actor, because what it does is it neuters the truth about the play. What makes it make sense? Oh, I guess that makes sense, so I guess it's not that big a deal, because it makes sense. What you want is to find the thing that makes it urgent and immediate and unavoidable, not the thing that explains it away. The thing that makes it all the more fucked up is actually your friend, because that gives you something to deal with. And, you know, these are questions you can ask about every character, and I'll tell you where my great passion for character history is being an important 
a critically important thing to understand where your character came from was actually something I learned from Jenny and the first time that we worked together, which was now like 12 years ago. I know. <laughs> it was the first show that I directed when I got out of grad school. And it was actually, I went back to my alma mater and directed a production of Romeo and Juliet um, uh, at Fordham University, which is where I went, at the non-theater major uh, uh, drama group, which I had belonged to, and I was a non-theater major undergraduate there. And we were doing Romeo and Juliet, and Jenny was my, uh, my stage manager. And I got to rehearsal one day. We were four days before opening, and Jenny is waiting for me at the door, which I thought was kind of surprising because we were four days from opening, and she really should have had stuff to do. Um, but she said, Kit, you have to go talk to Pat, who is playing Romeo. He's in the bathroom. He says he wants you to come see him. Like, all right. So I go up, and I go in the men's room, and this guy is curled up on the floor, shaking, sobbing, crying. And I'm like, Pat, what's going on? He's like, I don't know. I feel really sick. I don't know what to do. I know we need to rehearse. They're like, no, we need to call an ambulance. So we called an ambulance, and they came and got him. And we didn't know what was going on. And as it turned out, actually, he was sick. He had to, he had to be hospitalized for like three weeks and had to leave school for a semester. Um, we didn't totally know that that night, but we knew it wasn't looking good. We thought he might have to leave. We were four days from opening. And so I said, all right, well, what are we going to do? Because one of the things we'd really been trying to push with this group of students was that every role is important. We'd done all of this deep, you know, work and stuff on guard number four, just in the same way we'd done with Juliet, you know. And, um, you know, so that idea of being able to, well, I guess Friar Lawrence could move up to Romeo, and then we could move back. And it's just like, <laughs> A, promoting people didn't seem to, you know, go along with what we were, the spirit of what we were trying to do of every role is important. And also, then all these people had to learn new roles. So you're like, all right, well, what are we going to do? And we had some ideas. Well, I said, well, let's rehearse tonight, and then we'll, you know, come together and see what we can do. So I asked Jenny if she would play, if she'd stand in for Romeo, because she knew all the blocking. And so she got up and was, you know, reading through the part, and we were doing the beginning of the play and all this stuff. And then we got to the part where Romeo meets Juliet. And the girl playing Juliet was a freshman and was re actually really good in the part and really sweet. I liked her a lot. And, um, but she'd sort of gotten a little bit casual about the whole thing. You know, as it had gone on, it got to be a little bit like, oh, this boy likes me. That's nice. And, you know. and so I'd heard that Jenny was a good actor. She was stage managing this thing. So I pulled her aside and said, Jenny, do me a favor. Really play the scene with her. You don't have to kiss her at the end, but don't let her know you're not going to. <laughs> and so Jenny goes, okay. So then Jenny comes in and like starts playing the scene with her. And all of a sudden she's like, what? and is like doing the scene and sort of bobbing and weaving and trying to get the measure. And one, it was fascinating. But two, it was exactly what the scene is. It's exactly what the scene is. And I like sidled across through the audience watching this happen over the producer. And I said, is this something we could do? And he said, I was kind same thing. And so after rehearsal, we'd gotten word by the end of rehearsal that Pat was not coming back, and so we pulled Jenny and, and, and <coughs> Suzanne aside and said, would you guys be up for doing this? Um, as two women playing Romeo and Juliet. And we're just going to say, this is a world that doesn't matter. We're going to see what happens. Does the play work where it's two women as Romeo and Juliet? And um, he said, okay. So Jenny set off. We had four days. She learned the entire role in four days. And it was a pretty extraordinary that part. But one of the things we did is the next day we were rehearsing, and uh, we, I knew that Jenny needed to have some idea of her character history, and we needed to do something. So I set up an improv 
um, that I knew would force them to both share a lot of information about where they've been, just to like let Jenny do, you know, have a way to kind of process through kind of two birds with one stone, let them build their relationship and also get into character history. Um, you know, and so we're doing this improv, it ended up being like two hours long uh, from midnight to two in the morning, and you know they're they're do, doing this whole thing, and it was really nice and sweet and great, and I, uh, a great improv. And so the next day we're back and we're rehearsing and we're doing the um, balcony scene, and it was not going great. I mean, Jenny was being heroic, trying to figure it out, but it was just everything, nothing was falling into place. It was God, honestly, I was thinking a little bit like I'm not sure this was the best idea. What were we going to do? And all of a sudden, one time we're running it through, and all of a sudden. Just clicks it. It just clicks in. Like it just starts working. And it gets to the end. And I called Jenny and said, What was going on? He said, Nothing. I said, No, Jenny, what was going on? Said, it's stupid. <laughs> Jenny, what was going on? No, it's stupid. I said, no, it's, what was it? He said, I just realized how much she reminded me of Elizabeth. Now, who is Elizabeth? Elizabeth was Romeo's best friend when she was eight, who had moved away, that Jenny had invented the night before. Because that's how we experience life. That's why we fall in love with someone at first sight, not because they're Juliet and Romeo and Juliet, because they remind us of someone we already care about, because there's something that's going on. And that was something that Jenny just stumbled upon that became the entire driving force of her relationship with Juliet. And it was because when you were riffing and put, coming up with this character history, it was based on someone you'd actually known from your life because that's what it came up. And so all of this stuff that she had associated with this person who she had fictionalized into a person in Romeo's life became the driving force between the great love at the center of Romeo and Juliet because that's what got her there. And it wasn't something that she planned, but it was something that, again, her subconscious served up to her when she needed it because she put herself in a situation where she had set her subconscious to work on connecting this character and then put herself in a position where something had to happen. And that's where this character history can be really useful. Other questions you know, that you can do, what's your email address and your password? Think about yourself and what you've chosen for your email address and password. It says things about it will say things about your character. How do you sign letters? Sincerely, best, yours, yours truly. Can you play any instrument, sing, paint? Have you ever been paid for it? Could you fix a car? Could you hem? Could you fix a hem? Could you fix a plumbing problem? Do you have any tattoos? Are there any tattoos that you've thought about getting? And this is another story of, that I think is a, is a useful one of exactly what we're talking about. That, do you guys, any of you guys know the play Sunday on the Rocks by Teresa Rebeck? But it's a play that's, that's for women, and so actually women Everyone do scenes scene. from it a lot because it's, there's not a lot of plays with just a bunch of women in it. But, but I was doing a production of, um, of this play that I was directing, and um, the basic setup of the play is this that it's these four women who live in the same house. There's this one woman who's this hyper-religious woman who actually owns the house. These other three women who are boarders in her house, they all hate this woman because she runs the house like with an iron fist. Um, it opens up with this one woman sitting there getting drunk in the shared living room. 
two of the other women show up, and it comes out the woman who is getting drunk is getting drunk because she's found out she's pregnant and she's going to get an abortion and she's getting up the nerve to do it. And one of the things that they're telling her is like, you cannot let Jessica know about this, the religious one, because she'll throw you out of the house if she finds out you're pregnant. And so what happens is over the course of the first act, they trash the house. The first act ends with the other woman coming home and going, what's going on here? Blackout. Act two is they have this whole big fight about what's going on, and it actually comes out. The woman who's pregnant says, you know what, I'm going to tell you something. I'm pregnant. I'm getting an abortion. Fucking deal with it. And it becomes this whole thing. Anyway, that's the setup of the play. But the girl who played the very religious character, there were two things that were true about her. One was she was, she really wanted, she's a terrific actress. I've worked with her a few times on things. And one is she really didn't want this character to be two-dimensional. She's written kind of very two-dimensional. She's kind of the bitch who fights everyone. But she didn't want that, and I totally agreed. I wanted to see her be a fully fleshed-out human being and all of this stuff. And the other thing is she is not very religious. And so she had done an awful lot of work. One of the things, actually, because we had a while to rehearse this, we actually had taken an earlier version of this questionnaire and actually answered. Like, everyone answered all the questions. We actually talked about some of the things to kind of come up with some shared history. It was interesting and useful. But um, she was having a really hard time connecting to the religious element of her character. Um, and... She was trying a lot of things, trying a lot of substitutions, try, you know, and none of it was really working for her. And one of the things that she had done in this character was this question about, do you have any tattoos? She had said, I've got a Jesus fish on my ankle. That's what she decided. Jesus yeah, that, that she had a Jesus fish on her ankle, which kind of seems like, all right, kind of an obvious choice. Okay, whatever, Jesus fish on her ankle, got it. But one of the things, though, that we had discovered as she was working was that she, she really, she connected, she had a real, like, mother thing, like that she had a, her relationship with her mother was very important to her, and that was something she really readily connected to about characters. And so one of the things that she'd really been trying to connect to is, like, you know, my, my mom was very religious, and so I, you know, and so I'm trying to do this to honor my mom, you know, which was... That wasn't working, but we knew the mom thing worked. But one day we were working, and I, I'm not sure what made me ask her, except for the fact that we've been working. And I said, that tattoo that you have, said, yeah, the Jesus fish. I'm like, yeah. What does your mom think of it? And all of a sudden, she like, gets very dark, and she goes, she hates it. She said, I went on my 18th birthday and I went and I got this tattoo to show her that I, as I was becoming an adult, was going to take my faith into my life. And when I came home and showed it to her, she said I had, she said I had made a joke out of my religion. And nothing has been the same, same between us again. And so then, every time, whenever religion came up, she was not fighting for her religion, but it became a thing when people said things. She's like, you are not going to make fun of the thing that cost me my relationship with my mom. That was how she connected into her religion. And it's that idea of, it totally came out of the idea of, I got a Jesus fish tag. Because as much as she had, and it goes back to the idea of that facts are your friends. Because as much as she had tried to work intellectually on the idea of, of doing this for my mother, it was only once she found this specific thing about it cost me my relationship with my mom, 
it was actually standing up for the loss of the relationship with the mom that became the thing that was the stand-in for religion with her. But from the audience's point of view, all they knew is anytime anybody was like, you know, ah, I know, Jesus. She's like, don't joke about that. What she was saying is, don't joke about my relationship with my mom. All the audience knew is she was saying, don't joke about Jesus. But it's totally effective. And one, it's about that idea of finding that thing, finding that, actually, that hits every single one of the things we've talked about, really, which is to find the circumstances that are surrounding your character that make what they do in the scene critically important to you. Not what you think is supposed to have happened to them, but what they actually do in the scene critically important to them. Two is that idea of the crossword puzzle. Mom was something that hit really hard for her. Religion wasn't. So she found the way to run religion through mom. How does that thing connect up? And also that idea of it's the specific facts. Because she could sit there all day and we could say, religion cost you a relationship with your mom. That's not going to do anything. It's not going to do anything. I'm sad that that's not going to do anything for you. But if you come up, because that's part of the thing too, is that we are innately storytelling and story hearing creatures. We can watch The Lion King and bawl our eyes out about the fact that a drawing of a lion is sticking its head under the drawing of its, of the paw of the drawing of its dead dad. Like, they're drawings, but there is something about that story that is incredibly affecting. And it's that idea of figuring out what is the story that surrounds your character that makes their story incredibly effective to you. That's what we're talking about, about looking for. Um, another thing, and it's something that you will find is true in, in some of the questions on this. I'm going to keep doing that thing. Is that idea of don't respect your character's privacy. It's important that you know things about your character that other people don't know about your character. You'll see, I mean, there's a, a reasonable number of questions about the sex life of your character. I would argue even if it doesn't come up, that's a really important thing to figure out about your character because there are things that are true about you and a lot of times are things that are tied up in people's sex lives, frankly, that there are very few people that know about. And I find it can give you real purchase in a room if there are things that you know about your character that nobody else knows, even if it never comes up in the play, there's something about knowing there are things that I know about this person that gives you the purchase in the scene to really be there and stand up and advocate for your character in a room. And, you know, and, and it's, 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 you know, it's also something, I mean, that's the, you know, it's, it's another thing that, you know, might come because it's in a lot of scenes, but frankly, like, sex is a thing that you don't want to be polite about in a scene. It's an example of one of many things you don't want to be polite about in a scene. Because it's like, how many times have you seen in a play and they go back to the room and they get under the covers and they roll around? Because God knows when you're out trying to go home with someone, you're thinking, I can't wait to get under the covers and roll around. You know, that's not... But the thing is, it's like... The, the, the truth of the matter, if you're playing a scene where characters sleep together, no one is sitting there going, I hope that we have sex. <laughs> People have a much more specific picture of what it is that they're hoping happens here. And you're going to be able to play the scene much more truthfully if you don't protect your character's privacy from yourself about what your character really wants in that moment. Because the way you're going to deal with the other person if the goal is to make long, slow love to them in the moonlight, 
versus to bend them over the couch over there. I mean, those are two different scenes. Both are totally valid. But what is not a scene is, I hope we have sex tonight, which I would argue is the way it ends up getting played nine times out of ten. Anyway, let your characters be human. And I think also this idea of letting everything be steeped in this history, be steeped in these things that your characters, that the audience doesn't necessarily know. It gives you purchase in the scene. It makes the scenes very real to you. But it also makes the scenes more engaging to the audience. Because think about it, the times when you're watching a play and you are leaning into it, that you're like, it's because there is more going on than is on the surface. I need to pay attention to figure out exactly what's going on here. You don't want to spoon feed the audience. You want to, no matter how complicated a show is on the page, you want to be playing a show that's ten times more complicated than that. And it will elevate what you're doing. Um, you know, it can also be a really helpful thing, you know, the idea of shared history can sometimes be a really helpful thing, um, it, and not. You know, it's, it's actually something that's worth thinking about, that sometimes it's very useful, for instance, to do, like, improvisations on things that have happened recently. Something I find not a very useful thing is, like, we're talking about this moment when our parents divorced when you were four and I was six. Let's do an improv on that. Okay, there's no way we remember that the same way. So to do an improv so we both got the same memory of that, not helpful. Also, there's a lot of things in life, you know, it doesn't, you know, it's, it, it's important to find what moves you about a scene. And so very rarely will an audience be able to tell if the history that I'm playing is different than the history that you're playing, even the shared history. But sometimes it can be really useful, especially, frankly, if you're trying to, on a stage, and this is not so much the kind of thing that we're trying to do, but when you're building a character, when you're trying to establish that two people are very linked in, in a play, that if they have moments that they understand in a specific way that the audience feels left out of, because there's something that one of them is referring to that the other one knows they're referring to, the audience has no way of knowing they're referring to, that it can be a very useful thing sometimes, you know, where it just makes the audience feel a little bit like, all right, they're closer to each other than I'm there to them. It makes them feel that. Um, so that idea of complexity is your friend. But the irony is complexity is your friend because it leads to simplicity. It leads to simplicity. When you have all of these, it's the, the thing of Stella Adler, another Stella Adler thing, which is the, the, she said, the talent is in the choice. Is the choice that you make. But the trick is to make a choice. And you can only choose if you have options. And it's that idea of having all of this stuff to, that are, you have decided are true about your character so that you can pick the one that really gets you. It's never going to be the first one you think of. And I actually think a lot of, once you know we get up and start working, I think a lot of what the rehearsal process is, is like it's an elimination tournament for your affections among choices. Which is that you want to sit back and you want to go, these are a hundred things that could be going on in this scene. These ten seem really interesting to me just on their surface. So, I'm going to try in rehearsal each one of these ten. Great, now these five are the ones that really got me the most when I tried it that way. Now I'm going to see what happens if I start combining them. Oh, when I combine these two, until you get down to the choice that makes, that's thrilling. And it's not because you've sat there trying to come up with the one best choice, but you've come up with all the choices. 
and then you've picked from them the ones that thrill you. You'll never get all the choices, but you've picked a bunch of the choices. You've chosen all the choices. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's again, you want to find the choice not that makes things make sense, but the one that has the most compelling implications to it. The one that thrills you to tackle. Acting should be awesome. That actually is, I, I will say that, and it, and it, it, but it actually is a thing. It's a really simple thing, and it sounds stupid, but it's not. Is you want to find a choice that's awesome. That's the test. That's always the test. If you're like, I'm going to play this. How is it? That's a good, that's good. Then it's not the best thing. If you're like, I want to play that. It's awesome. Do it. That's, you know why? Because the thing I find awesome is a different thing than you find awesome. My performance that only I can give is going to be built out of the stuff I find awesome. That's all. Don't waste your time in rehearsal doing anything you don't think is awesome. You might find out it's not as awesome as you thought it was, but why be up there trying to do things you don't think are awesome? What's the point? It also makes acting fun. So, any questions about any of that sort of character history? Again, deep end of the pool. Got to toss your ass in next time. We hope that you enjoyed the second part of the performance only you can give. Join us next episode for the final part of the discussion, including approaches for identifying dynamic objectives and obstacles and the value of a goal-oriented rehearsal process. If you are interested in being part of the next session of our scene study class and finding the performance that only you can give, email Will Clark at classes at cryhavoccompany.org. Mention that you heard about the class on the podcast for a special first-time student discount. And if you are interested in learning more about other classes CryHavoc offers, please visit www.cryhavoccompany.org classes. So for myself, Kit, Jenny, and everyone at the CryHavoc Company, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. You can learn more about the CryHavoc Company at cryhavoccompany.org. Questions or comments can be sent to podcasts at cryhavoccompany.org. All music from this show came from the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Thanks for listening and please subscribe.